Uh, what I want to talk tonight about, I had, uh, there's so much, there's so many areas that we can cover in this course, and I, I have a sort of outline as we're going through it, and, um, but there's more material than we'll be able to get through in this, in the course of this year, and the topic, you can pass this around if you want, the topic I want to have us reflect on tonight is conversion. Uh, in our children, and what does it look like? Um, and uh, this is coming from my own experience of actually having to deal uh, over the last five or six or seven years in my university outreach work with children who have been raised in really good, solid families. And, uh, you know, the assumption would be that... Uh, kids who have come from this good, strong faith background have been surrounded by faith their whole life and been taught the faith and have such godly parents and have been formed in the faith would naturally just embrace that faith uh, in a sort of radical way in, in themselves. And my experience has been that that, that doesn't happen. Uh, it doesn't happen with everyone automatically. And it doesn't happen with in those that it does happen in. Uh, it, it it happens through some deliberate choices and efforts and processes that are made. So I want to have us look at that tonight, uh, and I'm going to do that by spending a little bit of time. This is a long outline, and I'm going to go through it quickly. But I'm spending a little t bit of time just getting us reoriented to the whole idea of what conversion is in the Christian life. So in order for us to understand what this process of conversion looks like in our own kids, we need to understand it in terms of our own life. And then what, what are some dynamics or elements of this process of conversion for children who've grown up in strong, nurturing, faith-filled families? Um, and uh, one of the things I want to suggest to us, and this is something I've experienced too in in community families is that even though many of us have experienced in our own life some profound radical conversion, we don't always think about our children having that same kind of experience or we don't we don't understand or appreciate the necessity of that dimension of their faith formation. And I think we can even slip into the uh, to an orientation that, that really it's, if, if we just get them to be basically decent human beings, good human beings, that, that that's good, good enough, who live productive lives. And that's good, and that's a, a notable goal, but our children need conversion. All human beings need conversion. A radical reorientation of one's life away from self in order to God. It's the goal and the purpose of our human life. And, and, uh, we need to think about that. Um, so let's talk a little bit about conversion. And I, I want to say a few things uh, in common. There are certain dynamics or truths that are common to every experience of conversion. So I'm going to speak in some generalities. Uh, there are some universals in terms of the fact that we're all human beings. And there's God's objective revelation to us in Christ, and there's the human response to that, and there's, there's general uh, elements and truths 
that are associated with God's purpose and God's plan for human beings in our response to that. Um, and uh, But we also appreciate that each person, each of our children, as we said in our very first night, is unique and individual and God's purpose and God's plan in each life unfolds in a unique and an individual way. I've heard it said that each person is, is a unique and unrepeatable act of God's creating grace. And so while we can speak in generalities and we can develop what we think might be effective strategies, uh, we're not looking for a cookie-cutter approach because it simply doesn't work. And that's not the way God relates to us, and it's not what's going to be effective in terms of the way we raise our children, but even as our children become adults, uh, enter into more responsible, mature, and converted uh, adult Christian life. so let's just take a look at the, the, the question of conversion. What is conversion? Um, and in the early church, the typical process of conversion, uh, and basically as uh, Christianity moved out into the empire, the gospel was preached and proclaimed. And men and women, more often as adults, made a response to that preaching of the gospel, experience some kind of conversion. On the, on the basis of that initial conversion that they experienced, entered into a process of uh, discipleship and catechesis that was, went on typically for two or three or four years, the process of the catechumenate <coughs> that, was, um, that was then culminated in this experience of coming fully into the communion of the church, the body of Christ, uh, at the Easter Vigil, in which one received then the sacraments of initiation, baptism, uh, confirmation, and Eucharist were all experienced in one uh, complete u- united act. Um, but what's interesting is that the beginning of this process was conversion. That there was already an a, 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 a initial turning towards the Lord with one's life, and then on the basis of that, uh, one entered into the to instruction and prayer and formation, and then finally came in fully sacramentally uh, into the life of the church. Um, that's not the way the process works today, and that's a sort of typical catechumenal process that that the RCA program actually is has been built upon in the church today. But the typical process for for becoming a Christian today is that a person is baptized when they're a baby. So instead of the sacramental initiations coming at the end of the the process, sacramental initiations comes at the beginning of the process. You're baptized a little bit later on. You you know, Johnny's getting ready to make his first confession and his first communion. And then as you're growing up, um, there's catechesis and formation, uh, partly. And then the conversion comes usually later on in the process as, as an adult or as a young adult at some points along the way. So the whole, the whole process is, is kind of flipped around from the way it worked traditionally in the early church. And there's a long history um, as to how we got there and there's all kinds of theological reflection around that that we're not going to get into tonight. Uh, I'd love to talk about it, but I'm not going to talk about it. Um, 
the catechism addresses this. I don't know if I included that on your outline. Did I? Yeah. I, I, I copied that section from Catechism 1229 to 1231, which gives us a picture of what the process of becoming a Christian looks like. And the Catechism says that from the time of the Apostles, becoming a Christian has been accomplished by a journey. So I think one of the first things we need to realize is that there is a process, a journey, and initiations to becoming a Christian. And the journey can be covered rapidly or slowly, but there's certain elements that need to be in place, which are the proclamation of the gospel, of the word, the acceptance of the gospel, entailing conversion, profession of faith, baptism of the Holy Spirit, baptism, outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and admission to Eucharistic communion. And then the Catechism goes on to say that this process is varied throughout the centuries, actually greatly. Um, and then it describes what I had just described to you a little bit earlier. And then goes on to talk about our situation. He says, where infant baptism has become the form in which this sacrament is usually ex- celebrated, it becomes a single act encapsulating the preparatory stages of Christian, Christian initiations in a very abridged way. By its very nature, infant baptism requires the post-baptismal uh, catechumenate. Not only is there a need for instruction after baptism, but for the necessary flowering of baptismal grace and personal growth. The Catechism has its proper place here. So when does conversion happen? When does a person become a Christian? What does it look like? So when does when a person become a Christian? When they're baptized, right? You know? The, the, the stain of original sin is wiped away and uh, a, a person's brought into relationship with God and has hope of heaven in baptism. I think traditionally in, in, the, in the church, the church uh, emphasized uh, the dimension of the sacrament that was uh, translated from the Latin, from the work performed, or ex opera operato. Have you heard that? You've heard the sacraments are efficacious, right? So, so that which is signified in the sacrament uh, is actually affected in the sacrament. So the pouring of water over the baby's head, which cleanses from sin or being immersed into the water and, and being united with Christ in his resurrection, that's, which, that's what's being symbolized. But that, that which is being symbolized is actually being affected. It's not just a symbol of that. So the sacraments are efficacious. Catechism says they're efficacious because Christ himself is at work. It's Christ who baptizes. It's Christ who acts in the sacraments in order to communicate the the grace that each uh, sacrament signifies. Um, So we believe that. That's a a central part of our understanding of the sacramental grace. Um... But in the church and in the catechism, we see also the, the reemergence of another kind of emphasis, and that is that just because the sacraments are efficacious, and we believe that because it's Christ who acts in the sacraments, uh, that the sacraments can be more or less fruitful in our lives, and that's dependent on our disposition in receiving those sacraments. Um, yeah, Father uh, Mesa. In describing what's, are you familiar with him, the Pope's preacher? 
He's, he was Pope John Paul II's preacher, and and then he Benedict kept him on, and so he preaches to the papal household, and he gives homilies during Advent and Lent for sure each year. And uh, but he's also a man who's who's experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit in his own life. He's got a great story, uh, powerful story. I mean, the, you know, back in the 70s, he he ended up at this Kansas City conference and. Uh, you know, he, they were singing "Lift High," the banners of love, Alleluia. Jericho must fall, and and some person who was with him turned to him and said, "You're, you're Jericho. Your walls must fall." And he had this profound conversion. But, and then he's written on the topic of this baptism of the Holy Spirit. But he t- he talks about sacramental graces being tied. Um. So we do receive grace in the sacraments. Baptism and confirmation and Eucharist, those are the sacraments of initiation, but those graces are tied and they become released in our life at the moment that we add to that sacramental action our own personal act of faith. So where we say yes, the yes of faith, the, the surrender of faith, the trust of faith, to the Lord, and what that does is allow that the grace that's been given to us in that sacrament to be released in our lives, and this is what needs to happen in the lives of our children. Um, and so, what we experience in the church, particularly with the deplorable state of catechesis and, and formation, is that a lot of people end up at adulthood not 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 formed in the faith, not catechized in the faith, not formed in character and not having given the response of faith. Um, There's a danger, and I think this is a danger for us, of a presumption of conversion. And I think we can even presume conversion in our own children. And we need to be careful. We can can think just because our kids are, are living and acting in a faith environment and they're going to church and they're even doing good Christian service, that in fact they've made that response of faith, that yes of faith. And oftentimes, they haven't. Um, and, I, and this is typical for you know this process. Some people have called it the Achilles heel of Catholicism. You know, evangelicals really do emphasize that moment of conversion, you know, that decision moment. In Catholics, we understand the process because sacraments are so central to our understanding of conversion. Um, but the danger of being oriented towards the process is that we presume that the results of instruction, of knowledge, of truth being imparted to our intellect equals conversion. I mean, how could one know the truth and give intellectual assent to the truth and yet not be converted? And this comes because and this is well anyways I don't want to go off on all that but this is John Paul II's uh, communion ecclesiology which transfers all of our theological categories from uh, uh, truth presumptions uh, prepositions truth prepositions to personal relationship so that really what's at the heart of faith isn't believing truth but what's at the heart of faith is a, is a response to a person. That faith is personal. 
It's a response to God himself as a person at the heart of our, and we all know this, at the heart of our faith is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It's a relationship with God and Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and we can fall into the trap of, of just thinking because our kids know their faith, are going to church, are serving, that they have this personal relationship with the Lord when, when they have never made that personal response of faith themselves. Um, okay. I, I've listed on there uh, a set of statements that I think get at the nature of conversion. And yeah, you read about these, and as you read about these, think about these in terms of your own children. Conversion is a free and radical offering of our whole life to God. The con- conversion calls for deep change, a radical turning about, a total commitment of our lives to Jesus Christ in repentance and the obedience of faith. It means recentering our passions and realigning our affections towards God's work in the world. <coughs> and and our self-seeking becomes secondary. It's a, it's a, uh, it entails a liberation from self-centeredness and empowerment towards the vocation of service and partnership of God. It's a, it's a daily decision. It's a lifelong process. Uh, so we recognize initial conversion and then we recognize the need to choose again and again and again. Uh, conversion isn't primarily uh, an emotional event, but a conscious, freely chosen commitment and decision. I think sometimes those of us in this movement can think about conversion mainly in terms of emotion. I think our kids, you know, they go on retreats and they think because they got prayed over and they had this emotional experience that that that, and we can think, well, they're converted. Well, I mean, that's a part of the. It's associated with the, the conversion process, but that's not conversion. I mean, it isn't conversion until your your life is reoriented and you're walking in a different direction. And what happens with our kids often is they're they're here, and then they they look this way and walk a couple steps, and then they're right back again, right? You know, that's what the process looks like as it as it unfolds. Um, you know, conversion can be either dramatic and profoundly life altering, or it can be more of a low key discovery of an own faith and discipleship decision that's developed over time, coupled with a conscious commitment to live out that faith. So, just because we're saying. It has to be a, a, a reorientation. It doesn't mean that it has to be dramatic. Uh, but it has to be decided. Now, you understand the difference? I mean, it's dramatic when it's darkness to light. And I'm going to show you in a minute that there's always darkness, but there's different degrees of darkness and different experiences of darkness in sin. But there has to be a, a reorientation away from myself towards God. Um, all right. Let's think about our own kids in, in, with respect to all this. Uh, you know, we, we've been doing for uh, five years now this school of the new evangelization, and one of the things that is happening with the school, which is a good thing, is uh, uh, our kids are starting to go to this school in significant numbers. And and I remember uh, a couple years ago, um, we we divided our orientation for the School of Evangelization into three groups. And we didn't tell them what the groups were. There were 120 folks there, and, but they each had a different colored dot on their folder, you know, orange and green and blue. And, 
and they were each told to go to a, a different room. And one room was for people who were returning to the school in evangelization. A second orientation was for people who were new to, to, to the school in evangelization. And the third was a session for kids who had been raised in community situations. We didn't tell them that. And I did that session, and I walked into the room, and I asked them, do you know why you guys are all in this room together? And they weren't just from, from Christ the Redeemer. They were from other communities, too. And they looked around the room and said, oh, we're all community kids. Um, what? <laughs> they were a smart group. Um, and then I just engaged them in a dialogue uh, over what their experience of growing up in strong, committed families, communities, was like for them. What, what were some of the dynamics of that experience? Things like strong, loving, nurturing, intact family life, which is, which is really rare. Big families, which is rare. Two parents, uh, who though imperfect, probably are at least trying to love each other and stay together. Uh, high moral standards, Right? Does that describe the way we're trying to raise our children? Lots of focus in family life on prayer, on honor and respect, on morality. Uh, lots of talk about faith at home and things of faith. I mean, I, I'm sure I could walk into to your homes during Advent and it's Christ-centered and you're praying and you're, you've got devotions and you've got dinner conversation around... Uh, things of faith and prayer. Strong discipline. Strict, they would say. Too strict. Being careful about things like media. The kind of movies they see. The kinds of friendships they develop. Things like dating and curfews. and Going to youth group. Uh, a certain kind of carefulness about their education and about their, their peer relationships. Perhaps homeschooled even, and lots of religious experience. You know, I asked them, how many of you have been prayed over in your life before? Oh, all of them raised their hand. Um, how many times, you know? 25! <laughs> uh, so camps and retreats, I mean, we see it. I mean, we see it in the building tonight, you know? Our kids are singing and worshiping and you know, from this age on, and raising their hands when they're two, and, and uh, you know, expressive prayer, life in the Spirit. And, uh, you know, I, I think a response to this should be, what, what a, how blessed, how privileged, how rich. I don't think they see it that way. They don't. But I say this to them over, and I think we need to say this to them over and over again, to whom much has been given, much has been expected. And what you've been given is extraordinary in terms of what the majority of people are experiencing in terms of family life, in terms of faith life. Now, there's a scripture passage that says, What have you that you did not receive? All is gift, right? And if you did receive it, why do you act as though you did not? This is what our kids, I mean, they just think, they were entitled to this. Um, and what I say to them is, you have been given so much and the Lord expects a lot from you in return. He's got a plan and a purpose for your life in this world 
because of what you've been given. And you need to think about that when you think about your life. It just isn't about me and my life. Uh, And what kind of contribution are you going to make with your life to God's people and God's kingdom? You know, another observation we might make about our kids in terms of this process of conversion is that their experience is oftentimes different than their parents' experience. I know that's certainly the case with me. Um, the, the, the community and the movement that they've been born into in which, in which they've been raised was formed and made up of people who, who many of whom didn't grow up in good, strong families or didn't grow up in the life of faith. It was formed by, by some people who were living very immoral lives, living in darkness, were living far from the Lord and had radical life-changing experience. And that was me, where you're, you know, oh God, rescue me from the depths, you know, and darkness, real darkness, and despair, and sin, and, and uh, you know, the, a, a profound experience of the em- emptiness that comes from being far from God, right? Let me think back to your own experience of conversion in your own life. And have had faith awakened, um, and this experience of expressive worship or being prayed over or the release of the Holy Spirit, this was all new for me at 19, right? I didn't have 25 experiences of being prayed over for the release of the Spirit by the time I was 19, you know? I didn't grow up in a family that was singing and praying and, and worshiping God. And so... It's important for us to realize that our kids have had it. They're not having the same kind of experience that many of us had. It's it's different. And what are we going to do with that? They're not experiencing the contrast. Um, they haven't they haven't had the experience of of knowing God's many of them knowing God's mercy as real and tangible. And and you know when we experience that, our our response was wholehearted. It was enthusiastic. It changed life. Changed relationships. Changed friendships. Got new friends. Changed the way I socialized. Stopped hanging out at bars and doing drugs and, you know, burning all my rock albums. (laughs) You know? Uh, We don't do that anymore, but remember the days when... I mean... It's it's amazing to me that you have these commercials on TV where they're doing music from the the 70s, right? And I hear these songs, I know them all, I've heard them all, and they're all so familiar. But when they get to the eight, like 79, I, I, I and forward, I don't know any songs, I don't know any artists, you know. I miss the disco, <laughs> and uh, because that's and I, I look at that experience, and that's that's what happened in my life. I mean, it's it's characterized by the fact that there was a point where all of a sudden I quit listening to secular music. Now I listen to some secular music again. Kind of like the '70s stuff. <laughs> um, well, you know what else happened is is, is is because we we had this profound experience. There's this zeal for evangelization. I want others to know the same thing that I've experienced. You know, there's nothing greater than knowing Jesus Christ, and now I. We understand the whole purpose of our life to love God and to help others come to, to know Him and the evangelistic movements that are a part of who we are 
have been born out of that kind of experience to reach out and they've been developed primarily from the aim of reaching out to, to, to the lost and saving the lost and helping them know the Lord and his joy and his peace and his love and purpose. And, you know, the communities and movements are made up of people who are completely on fire for the Lord and want to be holy and who have wanted to raise their children in godliness and holiness. Um, and by and large, we do a pretty decent job, you know, of, of keeping our kids from making really serious moral mis- I mean, some do. Some get involved in very serious sin. But most of us at least get them to 18, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah. Can you explain then what difference it makes to have that formation when they're children? Yeah. Even though they have to make, you know, decide for themselves later, does it well, I'm sure. It, I'm sure. It, yeah, my my conviction is it makes it does make a big difference, and that there's a you know sin has consequences, right? And there's a lot less baggage that if they get really converted that they're carrying, and so there's a lot more that they can offer. Uh, but you got to get them there, and they don't automatically arrive there. In fact, here's what I've experienced in our kids. Um. And again, these are generalities and there's obvious exceptions. But a certain kind of negativity towards information they perceive to already know. It's really hard for our kids to receive formation. Uh, They've been there. They've done that. They've heard it all. They think they know it. They think because they heard a talk when they were five on prayer that they know how to pray. And so if someone wants to stand up and talk to them at the age of 19 and say, uh, you need to be formed in the life of prayer. Well, you know, what, what can you tell me about prayer that I haven't already heard before? But there's a difference between knowing something and having that knowledge be a lived reality. But this is one of the challenges with our kids. and It, it means being creative in terms of how we actually impart that formation. But it also means that we need to help them grow in a certain kind of humility, conviction, uh, change. There's also a kind of callousness and hardness that I've experienced in them to receiving God's grace experientially in prayer. Because, again, you know, when I was prayed with, I had never been prayed with before. But they've been prayed with a hundred times. And so, here we're going to do this again. And the impact of what's happening there is is missed. So there's a kind of lack of expectant faith and and a resistance to... to, uh, to new grace the Lord wants to give a certain kind of callousness. Another thing I experience in them is pride. Self-righteousness. We're pretty good kids. We are better than most. And you know what? They are. I mean, they are. They're good kids. And compared to the way most of their peers are living, they're really, really doing well. Uh... Uh, also experienced in them judgment, judgmentalism, and suspicion towards those who've had dramatic faith experience. I experience this as, as our community kids come into our evangelistic outreach environments. 
And so here you've got people who really have had profound experiences like and who are really on fire and our community kids look at them and say you know it's unreal it's super spiritual it's what's wrong with those people uh and and, and maybe maybe there is a an element of their criticism that's that's true you know these people aren't from a human perspective maybe very mature but there's also something going on in in that experience that our kids haven't experienced and need to experience. Another thing you experience is experiencing them is dabbling in the world. This is a real challenge, you know. I was, I was trying to figure out why, you know, well, one of the things that we've had to deal with uh, in SPO with our missionaries is the whole area of smoking, which is really odd because we we never had to address smoking through, through the years. When people decided that they wanted to serve, be a part of the core, be a missionary within our, our evangelistic outreach and university campuses, people didn't, they quit smoking. I mean, guys still smoke an occasional cigar or something like that, but what I'm noticing is in, in the, these community kids' environments, they smoke. And what's going on there? You know? <laughs> Why are you smoking? That's just dumb, uh, and I think what it is 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 it's it really is a kind of delayed adolescence that our kids are going through. It is a kind of rebellion. It's a kind of well, I can do it because I'm 18 and it's legal, and for my whole life my parents have been telling me I can't do this, and they've been keeping me from doing this, and now I can do it. And and uh, or you know they they turn 21 and drinking becomes this big deal you know it becomes the way that they socialize and they're again they're not partying the way most college kids party but they're they start to make you know compromises or you know a, a, a kind of minimalism in terms of their Christian I mean what's wrong with smoking or drinking a few beers or staying out till three in the morning or not praying every day or they stay out till three in the morning they do don't they <laughs> I mean, what, what's so wrong? You know, watching movies that are maybe on the edge, and so what's ra- or what's lacking is this this radical decision to live for Christ, and it's kind of dabbling in the world and kind of one. You know, the, these kids they have got they have. I mean, they are good <laughs> when it comes to giving you the answer or giving you the impression that you want to hear. You know. They know what to say to you so that you'll be satisfied with their response about their behavior or their attitude or they you know the double life syndrome for our kids is is, is a big challenge um, and I think s- this double life is going on sometimes and we don't even realize it when they're in high school uh, and then it pops up. And then, uh, you know, a big thing I've experienced in them is no zeal for mission. No zeal for evangelization. Um, being really clicky, you know. I'm a community kid and I relate to other community kids and, and uh, you know, I really can't relate to these other people. What's the problem? Um, I actually think, I've been, I've been thinking about this 
for the last number of years that for I, I think some of that the, the story of the prodigal son is actually helpful in this regards. And I think there are some of our kids that are, are going to be the prodigal. But I don't think most of them are going to be the prodigal. And I think most of them are going to go off the deep end in return. I often, in my less holy moments, thought we should just let them all go sin so they can <laughs> get, it get it over with, experience their need for God, and then, and then return. And then they'll be radical. Of course, that's not the Lord's way. Um, but, I mean, think about the elder brother. He was a good kid. Spent his whole life with his father, working and serving, you know, faithful, loyal, committed, didn't go do bad things. And, uh, but he needed conversion. Something needed to happen in his heart, too. Um, and I think what needed to happen in the elder brother's uh, life is something that needs to happen in the lives of some of our children in terms of this process of conversion. Because there aren't two Christian calls. There's not the righteous and the unrighteous. There's not one call for those who are pretty good and those who are sinners. Because there aren't those who are pretty good and those who are sinners. There are sinners. All of sin, the scriptures tell us. Our kids are sinners. I don't think they realize they're sinners. But until they come to terms with the fact that they are really sinners and they need God, they're not going to experience conversion in their own life. We need God. And the problem with the older brother was that he didn't see himself truthfully and didn't recognize his need for God. That's the problem with the self-righteous in the scriptures. We don't see ourselves truthfully. Um... I mean, I've had a couple profound moments later on in life myself. I remember watching the movie Saving Private Ryan and uh, in that opening scene, you know, uh, Omaha Beach, D-Day. And, you know, just the... First of all, just the horror of, you know, the destruction of human life generally. But then there's this one scene where Americans get to the top of the hill and, uh, you know, they had the flamethrower and they're burning out the pillboxes. I don't remember the scene. And there's this, there's one German who comes out of the pillbox and he's on fire and he's stumbling around and one of the Americans is going to shoot him and another American says to him, you know, don't shoot him, let him burn a while. I don't know if you remember that scene. Or, or seeing pictures of the Holocaust. And I remember just thinking, you know, being struck by the horror of that kind of response and then thinking, thank God I'm not like that. <laughs> and then I, I hear those words and I think, now oh, wait a second, I've, I've heard that before. <laughs> right? Mm. Where, where, where are those words reminiscent of? God, I'm not like the, the Yeah, the Pharisee in, Pharisee in, in the temple. Thank God I'm not... not <laughs> You know, or Jesus, the woman caught in adultery. You know, or the rich young man who, who had everything and who was doing everything right, and walked away sad. Um, so, how do we help our children towards conversion? On this background, 
I, I think it probably begins with some self-examination on our part. I mean, what are our hopes and aspirations and vision for our children's lives? And do we communicate by our words and by our actions loving God and choosing radically for Him as our life's aim? So it begins with our own witness. And, you know, I know that radical discipleship looks different at 50 than it does at 20, but it still should be radical discipleship. And our children should be able to look at our lives and see the way that we're living and the choices that we're making and the things that we're, we're saying and communicating a call to really live in a radical, wholehearted way. And I think sometimes in our pragmatism that comes as life unfolds, we... We don't always witness that, that we witness more dabbling in the world and making compromises and loving the world too much. And but even what's our vision for our kids? I mean, are we content with the vision that's basically, if my kid's successful, decent, comfortable, responsible, good citizen, goes to church, basically moral, am I happy? Um, now, how do we view our children and the choices and decisions that they make as they transition to mature uh, adulthood? Is Christian conversion at the center of our concern? Do we talk to our children about their life choices and their futures from the perspective of radical discipleship, of living completely for God, of being generous with our lives, of having a zeal for evangelization of mission, uh, of a generosity of life towards the spiritually and materially needy among us, of changing the world. Is this the kind of vision that our kids get from us as we talk to them about their lives and their future? Or do we emphasize going to college, getting a degree, getting a good, well-paying job, getting a boyfriend, getting a girlfriend, getting married, settling. And those are all good things. But they're not everything. And they're not even the most important thing. And So I, mean, I think it starts with some self-examination. Do we allow or even encourage our children to make countercultural, kingdom-centered choices? Um, again, I think we can become very pragmatic as you know parents about and we don't allow our children to make some of the crazy stupid choices that we've made now they shouldn't make some in the, in the lord the radical choices in the lord now they shouldn't make some of those decisions i know my my son came to me this first year in college and we sat down and had coffee and he said you know he was in biology and math and physics and he was going down that road and he said you know what dad i'm going to I'm just going to become a theology Catholic studies major and do what you're doing with my life. And uh, there's a part of me that said, oh, wow, that's pretty cool. Uh, but that's not what I said to him. In fact, what I said to him was, well, I, I, I really affirmed the orientation, but I also said to him that he didn't want to close his options off in terms of his life. and that that the Lord would unfold his plan for him as he went through these next years of his life during college. And uh, one of the mis- I think one of the mistakes, if you call it a mistake, maybe it's not a mistake, I don't know, probably not a mistake, 
<laughs> one of the decisions I made was to actually do that. You know, quit uh, uh, going down a career track that was very lucrative because people said you should do youth ministry. They didn't tell me it's tough to do youth ministry when you're <laughs> when you're 50. <laughs> um, and so, uh, you know, I would appreciate it maybe someone saying to me, you don't have to be a theology Catholic studies major to do what you're doing. In fact, it's really good and wise of you. And so he, he came back and he's an economics and Catholic studies major now. And and But but even for me, I think the counsel I gave him was good, but part of what I'm wrestling with is, well, I don't, I don't want my son to struggle with the same kind of financial concerns this whole life that I've had to deal with because of the choices that I've made. In fact, who's going to support me my old age? <laughs> <laughs> or how about, how about our, what do we think about our kids really choosing consecrated celibacy for the sake of the kingdom of God? You've got to wrestle with that. I mean, it might mean no grandkids. <laughs> uh, I mean, what if our, our, uh, would it be thrilled if our, our children decided to live on the edge for the sake of the kingdom of God, you know? To move to the third world, to serve the poor, uh, or to do full-time ministry or evangelization or community building with their life for a season or for their whole life. Or, or, pors- or pors- postponing, we talked about this last time, postponing courtship until greater maturity for the sake of service. Um, Again, my, my experiences and my conviction is is that uh, um, some of our kids really are called to to put this in a, in a very radical way on the altar. I mean, my encouragement to most young men, if they can do it, is to actually do it. Lay it on the altar. If you haven't laid it on the altar, you're not ready to get married. You're not ready to receive the call and the gift of marriage if you haven't taken your state of life and, and offered it to the Lord and said, Lord, uh, your will be done. And I know that doing what you call me to do is going to, you know, got to help our kids, encourage our kids, make those kinds of decisions. John Paul II talks about offering the treasure of our youth back to the Lord. He uses the story of the rich young man. And especially those who have been given much our kids. We should be encouraging as we can this kind of generosity. Uh, You know, another self-reflection. How does our use of money communicate our priorities? Um, Anyways, you can think about that because I'm running out of time here. Um, Identify immature and unconverted attitudes and challenge them. So address self-righteousness and judgmental attitudes and encourage humility. And my son comes home and speaks to me in a, in, a, in, a, in a condescending ways about prodigals who've returned. What's my response? Do I say, well, yeah, you're right. That probably not a good environment for you to be in. You should really get it and relate to people who've had more of your experience. No, what I say, what's wrong with you? And you're lamenting God's profound act of grace in this person's life. Um, And you're acting immaturely, at least. And at worst, you're being self-righteous and judgmental. 
You need conversion because of that. But I think, you know, we coddle our kids. And, you know, um, we don't challenge them. They can teach you something. Maybe you have something to offer to them, but they can teach you something too. And let their enthusiasm inspire you and challenge you in your own mediocrity and complacency. You know, addressing ingratitude and encouraging generosity and gratitude. And really helping our children recognize the difference between knowing and living truth in the ideal. And don't assume, don't assume conversion. Um, help our children see themselves truly and grow in self-knowledge and understand their motivation and model a life that's completely given over to God. I, just, I, I listed you know, some strategies here that, that I've, I've found to begin to be helpful in terms of getting our kids converted and serving in a good kind of way. And we're, we're, we're making some pretty good progress in, in this whole area. But keep, keep the relational connection. That relationships are key. And hang in there with our kids through transition. Um, encouraging them, pursuing them, inviting them. Um, I mean, they have to go through the process of growing up themselves, of wrestling with themselves, of their histories, of their purpose in life. Uh, they can be very fickle and restless. They don't often know what they are or who they are or what they want. They'll say one thing one week and say another thing another week. And one of the things that they need, and not just in high school, but even after high school, through this transition in their life, they need, they need stable, consistent parents who are there. And not there in a wishy-washy way, and not, but there in love, in truth, and firmness. Uh, I, I think trying to keep them in the game helps a lot too, because they're, they're they go through this process, these processes, and it's when they wander away from the faith-filled environments and the conversion opportunities that there's there's a chance that they can be get. So sometimes just keeping them connected, even if they're not making choices for that which they're connected to, you know, allows for them to be in the right place at the right time when they're ready to respond to God's grace. I think college decisions are pretty key. Teresa just got some brochures on how to choose a, choose a Catholic college. Um, and I read through it. It's pretty good. But I mean, basically what they're saying is you shouldn't assume because the college is Catholic that it's a Catholic college. I think we probably all know that. Um, but I, I think even more important than choosing a Catholic college is, is being able to help our kids connect to and find faith-filled friendships, relationships, environments as they go off to, to school. Um, a lot happens those first couple of years at school. Um, and again, relationships are key. And I, I think we really have to, have to think about sending our sons and daughters away when, they're, when they don't have a firm foundation uh, in their own life. Um, so, I'm just su- suggesting we need to be careful and deliberate um, 
and that, in fact, trying to get them to connect it to a strong, faithful, moral environment should be a primary concern. Um, all right. Another strategy is encouraging seasons of formation and service. And again, the practical practical issues get in the way here. You know, they got to get a job. Well, yeah, they got to get a job. They got to pay for college, and it costs money, and you don't want to incur all this debt. That's all on this side of the equation. But the other side of the equation is, it'd be good for them to go on a mission trip, or it'd be good for them to to not work for two weeks and go to the school into evangelization and get connected in good, strong relationships, and you know, get immersed in this environment. Um, it'd be good for them to take a year off and serve. Um, We've been trying to do that with our with our kids. Uh, Peter did that first year out of high school. Anna did that first year out of high school. Daniel's graduating, and uh, Danny's a whole different ball of wax. and And uh, he's kind of felt like he he hasn't had a, the opportunity to make any choices for himself for his for his life. And so we sat down to talk about this a few months back, and I just let him know right off the bat, you know what, Dan, I don't have an agenda for you. He said, well, I thought it, I don't have a choice. I said, you have a choice. Uh, and uh, he's not going to go do a year of service next year. And I think it's probably a good thing for him to not do that. But instead, I got him to to commit to um, uh, doing DSO next summer. So he's going to go serve in the inner city of Detroit. And, and, uh, <coughs> and I'm still holding out to him the idea that I, I think we got to encourage most of our kids to give a year back at some point along the way, some way or another. I think two years is better. You get one at the beginning and one at the end. <laughs> um, and even to go at it from the perspective of not so much what they're going to get, because they don't respond to that, but what they're going to give. They're, they're oriented toward, they've been given a lot and they want to serve. And I think for many of them, their conversion is going to happen not because you're trying to convert them, or form them directly in asking them to respond to that. Uh, but it's going to happen in the context of, of service. And I remember, uh, I think this is probably okay, I remember Peter, um, when he was off in Belfast, and we were having one of our Skype message, instant messaging back and forth. And I don't know how we got on the topic, but I, I, I typed in, so are you experiencing the darkness? And he said, well, what do you mean? I said, do you see the darkness? Oh, he said, oh, yeah, I see the darkness out here and out there in Belfast and inner city Belfast. And I said, I said, I'm not talking about the darkness out there. He said, you've seen it in you. And he said, oh, I hadn't thought about that. <laughs> um... Okay. Uh, we, last time we did talk about decisions about dating and vocation. Again, uh, that's a key. Uh, bridging um, is another strategy that we're we're uh, we're finding that's pretty effective in this whole process. Again, because relationships are key, and where our kids land relationally is going to have significance for how their life unfolds going forward. And so we're really trying very very hard to build bridges from our university group to our youth program, from our formation program to our uni- university group, 
and then from the community to the formation program. And it's, it's, it's amazing how, how much getting these relationships working back is, is helping these kids. I mean, part of it is, was just a matter of getting a few kids like the Dan Kohlers and some of those folks to, to actually choose, make some choices to model. Um, but then once, you know, Danny now hangs out at the U of M. And uh, I mean, normally you, you might think a senior in high school hanging out on university campuses wouldn't be a good thing, but he's hanging out with, you know, or St. Thomas with, uh, you know, Joel Hall. Hopefully he's doing all right. But then this gives me opportunity to go to some of these guys, not like Joel, but some of the other community kids who aren't radical. <laughs> And say, or Peter, and say, you know, your brother's hanging out over here, and what, what's he seeing? Is he is he seeing? Are you a model for him in terms of his own conversion? Anyways, all right. Uh, the last thing in terms of the strategy that we need to think about is our kids need to make a choice for the Lord, and they also need to make a choice for a call to this movement. And uh, we do our kids a disservice by just kind of assuming them into the Lord. And we do them a disservice by just assuming them into the life of the community. And so part of our strategy is, is not even letting our kids, when they graduate from high school, uh, right off the bat, make a, a commitment to the community. Because you know? then it just becomes an extension of the youth group and... They're supposed to become adults, and they need to choose for themselves. And it's it's a great thing, I you know. Anna was off doing a gap year last year. I don't know if I shared the story with you last time. And then we decided in our SPO district to have our district gatherings only be for people who have made an affiliate commitment to the community. And if you haven't made an affiliate commitment, you can't come to the district meeting because we've been just having a kind of open-ended thing, and anybody wants to come, which is great because we're very mission, outreach, evangelistic oriented. And, well, Anna has not had the opportunity to make an affiliate commitment, nor is Sharon. And, because uh, um, they were doing service last year, and now they're the first year in the formation program. Well, Anna calls me up and says, how come I don't get to go to the district gathering? I thought, <laughs> <laughs> something's working right here. <laughs> and uh, I think sometimes we want to push our kids so much into things and that they, that, you know, they feel like they're being pushed into something rather than revealing to them the goodness and the blessing and the truth and the beauty of this thing and say it, it is really a privilege to know the Lord and to choose for him or to be part of his people in particular. All right. Final word, patience, perseverance, and prayer and recognize that our children have free wills. Those are my final two thoughts. But Any questions, comments, thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think... Maybe one other final word I'd say is we're this is something we're learning about. It isn't it isn't like we've got this, you know. Or a comment. I've worked with a lot of smaller Gordy young adults and we are doing for that. One of the things we look for, and I didn't make this up, somebody else did, but it's in terms of their faith development, um, the image of the house and uh, some kids, and I think 